invite you to join with me as I pray. Thank you, Lord, for that the music that just we just sang. Thank you that we can cast our cares upon you. This morning, Lord, I feel the burden of speaking only the oracles of God and not the opinions of man. feel the weight of wanting to serve, but serve in the way that you strengthen and you end up getting the glory. I pray that you would constantly keep my heart in check, that what I say originates from a pure heart and from uh, loving motives and a good conscience. I pray that you would open up all our eyes, that we would be able to see the truth of your word. And as the Thessalonians receive it as from your word and not from men, and receive it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so I ask for your help for all of us. we would not show any contempt or minimize anything that you have said but that we would be encouraged and transformed by your word this we ask in Jesus name Amen I'll be picking up in verse 11 when I read the scriptures, but just to lay a little context uh, before you, it's very clear that Jesus is addressing his comments to the Pharisees. It's very clear that the shepherds of Israel, the leaders of Israel, have failed the nation. It is very clear that the Pharisees to whom he's addressing have failed the people of Israel as leaders. It doesn't take much thought to take the next step and remind you that your shepherds at Elk Point Baptist Church will fail you from time to time. That your pastors will fail you This is not just something to be embraced by a group of people unknown to us. Our own leaders will fail from time to time. Reluctantly and sadly and with repentance we will fail. There's another sort of church gathering that happens in every Christian church and it's called the family. 
And you, there are some men here today, and you are priests in your home. You are pastors in your home. And you have failed. And you will continue to fail. Every human being is going to let us down at some point. There's not a single person on this planet that will not fail you sometime. I was encouraged when I read these words from the late Dr. R.C. Sproul, Sr. He said, I tell my congregation that they are God's sheep. I don't own them. They don't belong to me. Christ is their shepherd. The best thing that they can hope for me is that I'll be a good hireling. But that's all they can hope. A good hireling. Therefore I tell them they should not look to me but to Christ who is their good shepherd. The one that will never never desert them. Today I want to read the passage with you. I want to unpack it. But I want to say at the very beginning that the most important thing to me that derives from this text is that you here this morning, your hearts will be stirred with such confidence and such love for Jesus Christ that you will leave here fixated, dazed by the love of Christ. And you will be forever changed. As we contemplate his love for his church, we should not leave here without being deeply impacted. Or we've missed it, and I've missed it, and I've failed again. The Savior will never let you down. And we need to know that today. So I'm reading from John 10. I'm reading verses 11 to 18. And I wish you to follow along in your Bibles as I read mine. John 10, 11 through to verse 18. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. I know, I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. 
So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it up from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is God's Word. I'm unpacking this part of this huge chapter, this massive, theologically rich, intimate chapter. Though this passage, that part, I'm, ta I'm, I'm unpacking it and I've placed three headings that I want to follow. The first is that Christ builds his church through self-sacrificing love. Christ builds his church through self-sacrificing love. Secondly, Christ builds his church from all people groups. And thirdly, Christ builds his church according to his Father's plan. So the first one, Christ builds his church through self-sacrificing love. We see that in verses 11 through to 13. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is the hired man and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming <clears throat> and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I want to remind you that the Old Testament passage that Jesus Christ has in mind is Ezekiel 34. We've already dealt with that earlier in this chapter. Ezekiel's scathing rebuke of the shepherds of Israel how that rather than feed the sheep, they fleeced the sheep of all. They didn't feed them. They didn't care for them. When the danger came, they ran. And this is what Jesus has in his mind. He's addressing these shepherds who have failed. In fact, you needn't turn there. Uh, in, let me just remind you, in verses 7 to 10 of Ezekiel, 34, we read these words, Therefore you, she you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become prey, and my sheep have become food for the wild beasts, since there's no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and not my sheep. Therefore you shepherds hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall shepherds feed them. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths. 
What's Jesus doing? He's reminding these Pharisees their care over his sheep has been the care of a wolf, not a shepherd. He's accusing them of predation. He's accusing them instead of watching over and caring. They in fact killed and destroyed his sheep. But that's not true of the good shepherd. That's not true of the good shepherd. So he starts off by saying, I am the good shepherd. William Barclay, in his commentary, notes that there are two words in the New Testament for good. The first word is agathos. And the second word is kalos. Both are used throughout the New Testament, but they're used in distinctive ways. Here, when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he uses the second word, kalos. And so Barclay gives an incredibly good illustration of the difference and the uniqueness of this word. And I'm quoting him. Sometimes in a village or town, people speak about the good doctor. They're not thinking only of the doctor's efficiency and skill as a physician. They're thinking of the sympathy and the kindness and the graciousness which he brought with him and which made him the friend of all. The word kalos goes beyond expertise and skill. It goes on into the ideas that this person who's the good doctor or the good shepherd is filled with sympathy and kindness. The people that know this good doctor or good shepherd know him as a friend. They, he or she treats them as their own. Can you relate to that? Can you relate to to a medical doctor in your life that certainly is good in diagnosis and, 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 and as an expert, but they treat you as their own. They, they, they are overwhelmed with sympathy and love and kindness and care for you. That is the emphasis that the Holy Spirit is making on Jesus, the Good Shepherd. That he's absolutely filled with kindness and sympathy. When danger comes, he doesn't abandon his sheep. He protects them. He cares for them in that unique sense. You're mine. The emphasis in this passage is He cares for them in a unique sense that you're mine. Can I state the obvious without somebody getting mad at me? We as Christian parents love children. 
there's, there's no question about that. There's no question that we see our children even in our church and we love children. I defy you. I defy you to say today, I love all the children exactly the same way as I love my own. I defy you to say that. What a foolish statement. As our kids grow, and some of us as parents know that, there's nobody in this world that brings us to tears faster than our own children. There's nobody in this world that keeps us up late at night praying for their safety as our children. There's no one in this world when we see them perform and do well that causes such a, a radiance and a heartbeat and a joy. And you look up at that stage or on that ice rink or in that graduation, you say, that one's mine. <laughs> Is there anyone here, anyone that dare would say that is a really silly way to treat people? Is there, isn't it not God's design that we love our own? And by saying that doesn't mean we don't love other people. It says there's something unique about being your own. And throughout this passage we have this emphasis that Christ came and gave his life, and he loves, and he protects. Why? Because they're his own. You think that's strange when Jesus explains how he loves his own. He makes this Incredible statement in verse 15. Just as the Father loves me and I love the Father, so I love my sheep and my sheep love me. Now that's something I'm not going to be able to explain to you today. You know, sometimes as Christians in the Bible, we just got to read it and believe it and keep on trucking. And quit trying to wrap our minds around how that is. But it is a very clear statement that the intimate love relationship between the Father and Son is paralleled between Christ and his sheep and his sheep and Christ. There's an intimacy, there's a warmth, there's a, there's a, there's a drawing in that can only be explained and only seen perf perfectly within the Godhead. Within the Trinity. This is not going to be the first time Jesus says that. He's going to move into the inner sanctum of the upper room in John's 13 and so on. And he's going to repeat this idea. That the love relationship that the true sheep, the believers in Christ, have for Christ and Christ for them is of the same nature and of the same type. And I'm scared to use any words unless I blaspheme. But there's something similar 
to that relationship between Jesus and his church and what exists in the eternal perfect Godhead. And oh, how I want you to grasp that. That he's the good shepherd filled with compassion and kindness and love. One that protects his own. One who will not abandon. Who cares for you like his own. And cares with you on a quantitative level as the father and son in the trinity. But there's more. Remember little David in the sling? Remember David going to Saul and Saul looking at him with some contempt? David stands up and gives his own resume and said, I killed a lion and a bear. And a bear. And a bear. With his own hands. That's a good shepherd. A good shepherd is a shepherd that's willing to risk his life for the sheep. A good shepherd is a shepherd who will die rather than see his sheep injured or harmed. But that still doesn't come close to our good shepherd. You see, every good shepherd, every upstanding rancher, farmer, sheep herder, every good shepherd is willing to protect his sheep. He's willing to risk his life for the sheep. But Jesus says here words that extend way beyond that. He says, not only am I willing to risk my life for the sheep, I came to die for my sheep. And that's a big difference. It's as profound as saying to somebody that you may know in our church that has goats. Why do you have goats? So that I might die for them. You see the difference? There's a huge difference. I have them in my fold. They are mine. I call them by name. They belong to me. And the reason I have them is so that I may, not that I might die for them, not that I might risk my life for them. I am going to lay down my life for them. And you ought to read into that, not foolishness or stupidity, you ought to read in that the amazing love of Jesus Christ, that he would come to this earth and gather to himself a people with the full intention of dying for every one of them, not just possibly, but actually dying for them. I said words with intent. He did not gather them to potentially die for them. He gathered them to actually die for them.
the warmth of this passage. I know my, I would love to sit on a chair and just preach this and weep, weep all the way through it. That you would understand that the incredible warmth and intimacy that's being taught in this passage. Concluding with the fact that he is coming to die, lay down his life for his sheep. Now some of you might be new here this morning. You haven't been part of this series. Some of you may have forgotten. But a good question to ask at this point is, when Jesus says that I've come to lay down my life for the sheep, which sheep is he laying down his life for? And the important thing is to answer the question from the Bible, not from our upbringing, not from our reasoning. Further on in this chapter, in verse 29, you may not even have to look beyond one page. Verse 29, we read, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. Is that where I start? Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Oh, here's the verse. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Who are the sheep? The sheep are the ones that the Father has given to the Son. That's how you define sheep. The sheep are the ones that the Father has given to the Son. They are the ones we learned in verse 3, where Jesus goes to the fold and he calls them by name. He calls them by name and they follow him. If you think back to John 6.37, where we read, All that the Father has given to me will come to me. That's the same sheep. The sheep that is given by the Father to the Son will come to the Son. So when the shepherd stands at the fold and says, Johnny, come to me. Billy, come to me. Susie, come to me. They come willingly. And they follow him. And he leads them in and out. They're the ones that follow him. And these are the ones he lays down his life for. These are the way he, these are the ones that he dies for. Remember, John is emphasizing the intimacy between Jesus, the shepherd, and his sheep, the ones the Father has given him. A closeness that can only be defined when one looks at the Trinity.
let me be clear about something. Because there will be some people in this church be thinking down another road right now. And I don't want to address it, but I will quickly. The author John is not confused. This author John recorded the words of John the Baptist in the first chapter where John the Baptist looked at Jesus and said these words. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This same John records the words of Jesus as he met the woman at Samaria, at Samaria at the well in John chapter 4. The woman puts her faith in the Messiah and she runs to the village. She runs to the village and says, Come see a man that told me everything I've done. And then she says, He is the Savior of the world. John is not confused. He understands that there's an element here that needs greater explanation. In fact, in John chapter 6, he records the words of Jesus when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he has come to the bread of life to be the Savior of the world. John is not confused. He's the same one that wrote the first letter of John in the second chapter and said that Jesus Christ is the atoning, our atoning sacrifice, not only for us, but the whole world. John is not confused. But John is very clear as he records the words of Jesus in this chapter that the particular, intentional, personal mission of Jesus was to give his life for his sheep, the ones the Father has given to him. And that means that as good students of the Word, we must open our arms around the entire revelation of Scripture and understand the complexity of this concept. And there's time and places to do that. I've done it to, not, to my satisfaction. I have no problem saying to you today that the intention of Jesus Christ in, to come to this world, his purpose, his intention was to die for the elect. I have no problem telling you that. And I have no problem going to these other texts and explaining them either. So I want to say that to you, not to engage on the topic, but to warn you about something. As students of God's Word, you and I need to be warned about something. An example might work. I heard one of my favorite preachers in the last few years preach on Ephesians chapter 5, and his text had to do with the wife submitting to the husband. How many of you don't just love that text? Ladies, put up your hand. He got to the point where it says, Wives, submit to your husbands. 
And then for the next 30 minutes, he covered all the things that that doesn't mean and then wrapped up his sermon. And I went away, brother. They still don't know how to submit. <laughs> they know how not to submit. They know the guy isn't supposed to be a tyrant. They know he's not supposed to lord it over. They know all those things. But what does the dear lady need to know you haven't told them? And we're in danger of doing the same things when we study God's word and we hit a text like this. Our mind suddenly goes to all these universal texts that we think changes this, and it doesn't. God's Word isn't contradictory. And we miss the point of the passage by dealing with all the so what's. Am I making myself clear? Because if you leave here today and all your mind is caught up with rationalizing all these various texts, and you miss the fact that Jesus Christ came to earth for you as a believer, and when he was on the cross, you were on his mind. If you miss that, you've missed this passage, and I have failed you again. We should be crawling out of this place this morning. Literally crawling out of this place. Overwhelmed by the love and compassion of Christ. Who came at his father's bidding. Who came to this earth. And was given sheep by his father. Whom he would gather and love and die for. And rise again and keep and protect forever. If you missed that this morning, you've missed the text. The other can be dealt with in Bible studies or coffee shops or whatever. But don't miss the text. Don't miss the text. The text most closely is parallel to Ephesians 5, by the way, but not about ladies, about men. Verse 25, when it says, Husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. This love relationship between Jesus and his church is so profound that it's, it's, it's like what occurs within the Godhead and it's supposed to be what like occurs in our marriages where a husband is, is righteously possessive, where a husband is caring and kind, who's just not skilled but is just overflowing with tenderness and sweetness and is willing to do anything to protect his wife and he goes into his life prepared to die for his wife. And multiply that through billions of times and you end up with Jesus, our good shepherd. Christ builds his church through self-sacrificing love. And let me remind you in key words what that meant so that you understand. Christ's love for his church, number one, is intentional. Intentional. 
It's personal. Christ does not love a nameless group of people. He loves you by name. It's a particular love. It's a particular love. It's a protective love. And it's a love that provides for every single need you ever have. Secondly, Christ builds his church from all people groups. We see that in verse 16. What comforting words these ought to be for us as Gentiles. Because if we, didn't, if we stop somewhere else, you might got, get the idea, well, sure, Christ loves the sheep out of Israel. He sure loves them. But verse 16 says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Remember we already said the fold is, is the nation of Israel. The flock is God's. The fold is Israel. So he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. He's clearly speaking of the fact that people from other nations will also be part of Christ's flock. And there he goes about and does the same thing as he does for Israel. He does exactly the same thing, except instead of calling to the fold, the fold of Israel, he calls now to the whole world. He stands before the whole world and does the same thing. He calls his sheep by name. That's what the text says. To the whole world. When they hear his voice, they respond. Certainly this has to do with the Gentile nations. The people groups. All around the world. It conforms with the plan of God. Many of you will know Romans 1.16. Many of you will know it by heart. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also the Gentile. There's not only inclusiveness there, there's order. Christ comes to the fold of Israel and says, My sheep, come. You, 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 come. And the same Savior turns to the entire nations of the world, all around the world, and says, my sheep, come. I got you. Come to me. They hear his voice. They know the voice of the shepherd. They follow him. What ends up happening is when the elect of Israel and the elect of the world are called out, they form one fold, one flock. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 to get this nailed in your hearts. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul's writing to Gentiles, to people like you and I. Then he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh also called the uncircumcision 
by what was called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh of hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Now watch this. Who has made us both one. The called out Israel, the called out Gentile, is now one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now watch this. Here's the purpose. That he might create in himself one new man in one in place of the two so making peace beloved it's clear it was promised in Ezekiel 34 it is explained in John 2 it is further developed in Ephesians 2 by the apostle Paul the purpose of Christ was to come into this world and call from amongst Israel the nation his sheep the ones the Father gave him. He calls them by name. He goes to the entire world. Calls his sheep. The ones the Father has given to him. And what does he do with these two groups? He makes one. And if we were to read on further in Ephesians 2. That one is called the church. The church. Created from the called out Jews, created from the called out Gentiles, that one man, that one group is the church. As I watch the news, I hear a world is crying for reconciliation. When I watch the news, I, I hear the world crying for the elimination of racism. And beloved, you and I need to know this morning there is only one answer to the issue of reconciliation. And I'll be bold enough to say this from this pulpit, including the First Nations of Canada. There's not a walk of reconciliation in the world that will do what Jesus did. There can be no reconciliation between people. And there will always be racism until people respond to the voice of the Savior who says, come to me. I'm going to make one new man, one new body. I'm going to make a church where there is no Jew anymore and there is no Gentile anymore and there is no bond anymore and there is no free anymore and there is no male anymore and there is no female all are one in Christ Jesus other than the gospel other than presenting Christ other than the redemption that Christ offers there won't be reconciliation there won't be peace. There won't be forgiveness. And there will always be racial hatred. 
Christ builds his church from all people groups and he makes them one. Lastly and finally, Christ builds his church according to his Father's plan. I take that from verses 17 to 18. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Beloved, that last sentence is the governing sentence to determine how to interpret the, what, just occurred, what it was just written above. John's now writing what Jesus has determined what he does and why he does it and how he does it, it all falls to this one sentence. This charge I have received from my Father. The coming of the shepherd to the world. The calling of sheep. The sacrificial love that Christ has for the sheep. And so on and so on. All comes from the Father, pre-existent of time, pre-existent of history, in the eternal counsels of God. God the Father and God the Son enacted a divine plan where the Father decreed, that's that same word, charge, where the Father decreed, my Son will come, I will give to him sheep. He will love that sheep. He will care for that sheep. He will give his life for that sheep. And later on we'll read, and he'll give eternal life to that sheep. And no one can pluck that sheep out of my hand. All of this occurred according to the Father's plan before the world was founded. He is the great architect of this plan. I'm emphasizing this for a reason. He is the architect of this plan. And Jesus willingly complied with this plan. The love relationship between the Father and Son propelled Christ to come. He was compelled to come because of the love of the Father. He was compelled to come and sacrifice his life for sinners like you and me. But he didn't cease to be God when he came. Because even though he followed the will of the Father and said, yes, I willingly die for these sheep, he also retained his divine nature and said to these Pharisees who, by the way, are trying to kill him, he says, you can't kill me. <laughs> I get to lay down my life when I want to. And not of that, I'm going to pick up my life when I want to. That's God speaking. <laughs> All of this was decreed by the Father. All of this was decreed by the Father. 
All of this was decreed by the Father. You say, Pastor Jim, why are you emphasizing that? The same way I started this sermon. If it's decreed by the Father, it can not fail. It can not fail. The well-intentioned ideas of Peter who said to Jesus, I'll fight for you. They won't take you. They won't put you on a cross. No, it was already predetermined that Rome, under the evil Jewish government, would crucify our Savior. It was already decreed. It was already decreed that Jesus would come. And he'd call out sheep by name. And he would give his life for those sheep. It was already decreed. The plan of the Father cannot fail. You can watch the world. You can watch the world in all the chaos. You can hear a government say, no Christian can come into my country. You can hear all that in your news, but I'm here to tell you, the plan of God to save his people cannot fail. And thus Jesus would end up saying, in Matthew 18, these familiar words, I will build my church. And you say the rest. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why? Because it was decreed by the Father. It was decreed by the Father. As that portion of this passage ends, there's division among the people as they hear these words of Jesus. I don't find that difficult to understand because when I've preached on this text before, there's always been division among the hearers. There are some of you that don't want to hear that. It doesn't sound like it fits within your framework of thinking. There's always divisions, but there are some. There are some that believe. There are some that hear. This passage is all about relationships. It's not to cause you to spiral off into all kinds of mental gymnastics. The relationships of the shepherd to the sheep. The relationship of the sheep to the shepherds. The relationship of the shepherd to God. The relationship of God to others. And the relationship of the sheep and yet the other sheep that are not in yet. All that's a part of this. And what is it that binds all these relationships together? It flows like a stream through this passage. It's this, the sacrificial, amazing love of Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and you're his sheep, you say, well, how do I know that? You know that if you've repented of your sin, if you've authentically come to Christ as your Savior, 
If you bowed before him in submission and, and, and believed the good news of the gospel, and if you're following his voice today, you can have assurance from his word that you are his sheep. And if you are his sheep, I want you to know that my words can never communicate how deeply and how broadly and how immensely and how particularly and how de definitely Jesus Christ loves you today. I cannot possibly conjure them, the human words to do that. I've been praying since last week that God the Holy Spirit will somewhere in this room fall mightily upon someone and someone would absolutely wilt in the knowledge of how deeply they are loved. That before the world was created, God the Father in love for the Son sent the Son particularly to you, called you by name, went to the cross for you by name, and raised you up to give you new life. There's no love like that. It's specific. It's sacrificial. His love is amazing. Sherry, would you come with your team? And this morning I'm going to use a closing hymn as an application. Donna, when you have a moment there, if you could put that on the slide so people can see. I realize that within our library of songs that we sing is the most amazing application. We often sing the, the song, the hymn, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. We sing it as part of praise and part of our adoration. But I recognize that within this hymn is also a response. Right in this hymn is a response. Stuart Townend wrote this hymn with a unique purpose, I should tell you. There was a time in his ministry and his singing and his concert, he got tired of all the emotionalism and all the hoop de raw. And the Lord constrained him to write a hymn that was just about God with no, no fancy-dancy emotionalism, just a pure hymn about God. So he sat down and he wrote these words. And, he, and these words are familiar to you. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away. A wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. In the second stanza, we start to recognize why there's such pain on the cross. Why, why is there such darkness and pain on the cross? Behold the man across my sin. My sin upon his shoulders. Then the author sees himself standing at the, in the crowd jeering at Jesus as they did that day. They jeered at him. 
Hey, if you're the son of God, why don't you come down? You healed many, why can't you do that? And yet it was our sin that put him there. And then in the third stanza, we're going to sing, I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, nor wisdom. I'll boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Now here's the application. Why should I gain from his reward? How many of you times have, you, have we sung that and you wondered, wonder what that means? You see, when Jesus Christ obeyed the Father and came to call out a people to himself and to give his life for that people, okay, God promised him a reward. It's recorded in Isaiah 53, verse 11 and following. It's recorded there that this man of sorrows would be rewarded with great joy. And those that believe in him, Isaiah says, will be justified. But Christ would be rewarded with great joy. He comes at his Father's bidding our sin puts him on the cross and the writer of the Hebrews picks it up even clearer and says for the joy set before him and Townend writes these words and I hope they're a question on all our minds he gets the reward of joy why should we get anything in other words why should you and I benefit from from what Christ did. Allow me to play the devil's advocate for a minute. There might be some people somewhere say, well, I should get the benefit from Christ's death on the cross and his joy because actually I'm a pretty good person. You know, I, <laughs> I do pretty well. I, I know I drop the ball once in a while, but overall, you know, when you, you weigh it all out, I'm a little, I'm, I'm pretty good. So I don't see any problem me getting part of Christ's reward. Why? Because I'm a pretty good person. It's sad if anyone would think that way. Someone else might say, well, I, I don't see a problem gaining with Christ's reward because, well, I'm a pretty wise person. You know, I can see things pretty clearly. And one day I saw, well, if I decide to receive Christ, then I'll be saved. If I reject, obviously that's not good news. So thank God I'm smart enough to make the wise decision. I made the wise decision. Therefore, I don't know why I shouldn't be part of the reward because I was part of my own salvation. That's not true either. Stuart Townend gives the right answer. I can't give an answer, he said. You figured this out this afternoon in your reflection. You, when Christ loves you and I to this degree, 
Why? And you will be left exactly where we all should be, is I don't know. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. I didn't have the right ideas. I didn't have the right ways. And why Christ would manifest his love for me and die for me is absolutely beyond human understanding. And beloved, when you and I get there, we start to understand the love of Christ. When you and I get to the place that we've done nothing to boast in, That if we stood under the cross 2,000 years ago and looked up at Jesus before he died and asked him, why, why would you die for me? There is no human answer apart from the divine love of the Savior. There is no human answer. And the only thing you and I can rest in is the fact That he paid the price we should have paid. And by his wounds we are ransomed. What should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. Why should I benefit from the death of Christ? It's all because of his love and mercy. you go home today smitten wrecked ruined by the love of Christ